they're transitioning off stage, I want to draw your attention to a couple of housekeeping items in your bulletin. Uh, for those of you who may have missed the messages that have gone out, today we'll be celebrating 30 years of ministry for Danny Berkner here at this church this evening at 6 o'clock. Uh, Fellowship Hall is all set up. You'll get to see pictures of Danny when he was a young man, and he looks surprisingly like the young man who led worship this morning. So you'll basically kind of know what Michael looks like when he's 30 years older. He'll look a lot like Danny looks now. So anyway, uh, that'll be the situation that he's facing, which is not a bad thing. So, But uh, just to give you a scale of what kind of a big deal this is, you know... Um, you know, the average in the SBC for somebody in Danny's capacity is normally about 16 to 18 months is how long somebody stays in a position like that. Average for pastors is about four years. So uh, beating the odds here at Grace Baptist Church, he's got 30 years over 16 months. That's a pretty good run, isn't it? So come back here tonight. And I made a joke. There was a guy that retired from the prison system here in Tennessee in the first service. And I said, I'm pretty sure 30 years is a life sentence, right? A life sentence serving somewhere. And uh, he kind of said, no, it's been a joy to serve, and he'll probably say that again. Anyway, that joke didn't work as well in here as it did in the first service, but it was funny in the first service, take my word for it. But before I move on from that, one last thing I do want to say is that any minister who has had longevity and has been successful, it is because he has had a support of a loving, praying, faithful wife behind him. So we're also celebrating Becky tonight as well and what she has contributed to his ministry too. And uh, when I said that in the first service, he shook his head yes in front of the whole stage. So he wasn't just, you know, and I'm not just trying to say that, that's the truth, that is the truth, so... Anyhow, all right, let's, uh, I now invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, whether you're joining us for the first time or the first time in a long time, we're moving through the Gospel of Luke this morning, and we have come to the point where we are going to be looking at uh, the death of Jesus, the most famous death of all time. And so as we unpack this today, though, there is some important truths that I hope that we see. There is some testimonies here of who Jesus is, and there's crumbs all over this. Did someone eat a biscuit up here this morning? What in the world is going on? I'm going to make a sign, no biscuits on the pulpit from now on, right? So... Anyhow, biscuits up here. I'm going to get in a wet rag. I can't, I can't deal. I've been married to my wife too long. I can't deal with crumbs on the table, okay? Sorry. All right, here we go. Here's the word of God this morning, church. Hear it. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, crying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Amen. May God have blessing to the reading of his holy and errant and infallible word. I pray he writes this truth from all of our hearts. Because the grass withers, the flowers fade. Say it with me if you know it. But the word of our God endures forever. All right. Jesus here is finally having the sentence carried out on him. But this way and style that Luke is writing 
It is not Jesus who is on trial, but rather it is the reader of the gospel who is on trial. And in this section of scripture today, you have four witnesses, four witnesses in the trial who come forward and give a testimony to who Jesus is. So let's look at these four witnesses that we see here. First of all, there is the testimony of the Son, S-U-N, not S-O-N, S-U-N, although there is the testimony of the S-O-N in a minute, but the first testimony is the testimony of the Son, S-U-N. Notice what it says here. It was about the sixth hour. That's roughly noon. It's roughly noon, middle of the day. It says here, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So we're talking about a three-hour window from noon to around three, three o'clock-ish. Okay? The, the sunlight fails. What is this? How are we to think about the darkness that we see in this passage? What is the way that we uh, process this and how do we understand this? Well, like so many things in the New Testament... This darkness is multifaceted, right? You ever seen a, a, a beam of light that just looks white to us? When it hits a prism, it separates into multicolors. Well, they're all in that beam of light, but I want to draw your attention to a few of the colors that are actually in the darkness. That's very more, you know, backwards there, but let me see if I can do this for you. One thing I think that we're seeing here in this passage is a corporeal, that's just a big fancy word that means an a image that you can see of the spiritual darkness that surrounds Jerusalem, right? What, what's going on right now in Jerusalem? What are they doing? They're celebrating the what? The Passover. They have this system that they had built in the temple. They had built it around money and around keeping power. And there had been corruption that had entered into the system. And they were rejecting Christ, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. And there is a darkness from that. And so that darkness spiritually is now physically seeable. But there's more than just this as well. There is also another element that is here. This darkness reminds me of the Old Testament as Israel was being delivered from Egypt. If you'll remember, as God was judging Egypt, one of his judgments was that Egypt would be cast into darkness, right? The sun would be hidden. Now, you might look at this and say, ah, oh, it was just an eclipse. It just happenstamps an eclipse. Well, I'm not a person who studies stars. I can't think of that technical term right now. I'm not a person who does that. Uh, alignment. What is it? I'm not an astrologer. And I didn't stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night, so I'm not going to get into all that. But what I will tell you is this. Do you know what the longest eclipse recorded is? How long it lasts? What is the, does anybody know? The longest? How long? Uh, about nine minutes. That's the longest eclipse that's ever been recorded in scientific history. And this lasted how long, church? Three hours. It is almost as if God placed his hand or something over the sun and blocked it for this amount of time. Now, an implication or an application of this, I think this is a, excuse me before I give you that, this is a fulfillment of prophecy. Amos talks about a day of darkness setting in. Look at Amos, if you have your Bibles handy, look at Amos chapter 8, verses 7 through 10. It says this, The Lord swore by Himself the pride of Jacob, I will never forget anything they have done. Will not the land tremble for this? Remember, Jesus, as He's on the cross, there's an earthquake, land trembles. And all who live in it mourn, 
The whole land will rise like the Nile. It will be stripped up like the sink, like the river of Egypt. In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious festivals into mourning. And isn't the Passover just the ultimate kind of Super Bowl holiday for the Jews? Yes, it is. All of your singing into weeping. I will make you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make that time like mourning for all for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. It's all there. Amos here, hundreds of years before Christ dies on the cross, prophesying what would happen. The sun goes dark in the middle of the day. There's an earthquake here. The people that are gathered there will go into mourning. And we see that as they're beating their chest. We'll get to that a little bit more here in just a moment. So the first testimony here is that of Darkus. A little application or implication here too. Um, if you've ever been outside on a very bright sunny day, maybe without sunglasses, and you've entered into a dark room, maybe a restaurant where your eyes... Uh, you know, you're used to, they're very constricted there, you're used to a lot of light. When you enter into that dark room, you're not used to a lot of light, and you can't, what? You can't see very well, can you? When you enter from a bright room into a dark room, you can't see very well. But what happens over time as you stay in the dark room? You, you adjust, don't you? You adjust to the darkness. Your eyes get to where you can start to see. Now, this is just an observation Probably a culmination of multiple conversations I've had in the last few weeks. But one conversation I had, I was at dinner. A friend of mine, another friend of mine, they were family. And one of them decided it would be a great idea for dinner conversation in front of the pastor, a pastor friend, to call out some sin in the other Christian's life. This is the kind of dinner conversation we all live for, isn't it? It wasn't awkward at all. And by awkward, I mean on a scale of 1 to 10, it was about a 300, right? Super awkward, you know. I just came to eat pulled pork and have some pretend potato chips, right, that are keto-friendly, right? That's why I'm here. And to have some fellowship. The conversation centered on, why don't you go to church? Why don't you go to church? Why don't you go to church? And I think what the person was hoping for was for the pastor to jump in and beat up on him for it as well. And I just listened, you know, I just over at the sideline listening. I get tapped in, I get tapped in, whatever, you know. And they were pressing them, pressing them, and they said, hey, you know, uh, don't you even feel convicted about not being at church? No, I don't feel any conviction at all. And this person had an extensive history of being a very faithful believer in church for years. I just don't go. I like to go by myself, you know. And it's like, well, and then... When they said, I don't feel any conviction about not being with the body, my heart just sank because I said at that point, I wasn't going to get tapped in, but I was like, you know, um, you still have to contend with Hebrews chapter 10, which says, don't forsake the gathering together of the body, right? It's a command from God. You've got to deal with that somehow, some way. I think what has happened is, Our generation of Christians have accepted a flimsy ecclesiology and our eyes have darkened to it. Church has become about what you can get out of it instead of what God intended it to be, the bride of Christ, a covenant community, a people of God, loving one another with the great commandments and fulfilling the great commission. Another conversation I had was with another guy, a progressing Christian, 
tell me his wife and him got divorced and things were better now a year later in the divorce and I was like what was she doing was she like an axe murderer and she was going to kill you like what scenario are you better off divorced other than perhaps murder right I mean there might be a few other exceptions to that but there's not a lot Uh, is the center of our faith not forgiveness should our marriages not rest on forgiveness and charitable judgments towards one another I'm sorry, I thought for sure that would get an amen or some kind of response. Should our marriages not rest on forgiveness and charitable judgments towards one another? Okay, there it is. Man, alive. I'm going to get some Dr. Pepper in here. I don't know, something. Mountain Dew maybe? Ratchet it up. Anyway, and then another conversation that I had recently. I was at the lake. I just wanted to enjoy a lake day, right? Just have a relaxing lake day. And a person begins having a conversation with me. And they're from a sister Baptist church in about two counties over. They work in something like what Jeff does or like what Richard does up there. And their buddy that works with them didn't believe in the Trinity. Like rejected the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity. Which, if you're a little confused about this, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit are one. Distinct but one, right? This has been a dividing line of Christianity from every cult in history ever. (laughs) Okay, just to make that clear, this is a heresy that Catholics don't even engage in, right? Catholics affirm the Trinity, and he was talking about the Trinity. Like, you know, I've all, you know, his wife was jumping in. I've always been told the Trinity is true, but I just, and it was like, it sounded like it was the most, one of the most foundational doctrines of the church from the time of Christ and even, I could argue, from Genesis, was being questioned and being undermined. And they were talking about it like somebody would say, you know, I was always told that women couldn't wear pants to church. You know, it's, uh, it's not a problem. You know what I mean? Like, and I've always been told the Trinity is true. Well, wearing pants to church and the Trinity are not in the same ballpark. Okay? That's two totally different things. Right? One is dealing with some legalism. One of them determines whether or not you're truly a believer or not. Totally different things. Totally different triage. And it all feels like adjustment to darkness, spiritual darkness that's sitting on the land. Flimsy ecclesiology. Flimsy marriages not built on the gospel and on forgiveness. And really flimsy views of theology that separates us and makes us distinct from the pagans that surround us. (laughs) All right. So the darkness is a testimony here. The second thing here, second thing here, Jesus called out with a loud voice, or excuse me, I jumped too far down. Uh, light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. I have artwork for you this morning. Jeff, can you bring up the image of the temple for me here on the temple mount? Let's see if we can get this up. I hope this works. It worked in the first service. Let's see if it works in this one. Do you see it? There's just below the... I know I'm springing this on you. I should have warned you. Uh, while he's pulling that up, let me kind of talk to you about the temple for just a minute here. So the temple had a kind of a twofold design. The temple was one designed to keep people out because the holiness of God was seen to dwell in the most sacred spot, the center, the holy of holies. And it was also sort of designed to keep shut God in. So as you came to the temple mount, 
you wanted to go into the temple, the first thing you had to do, Jew or pagan, either one, is you had to take this sort of ceremonial bath and change clothes and wear new garments that weren't stained by whatever you'd been around as you made your journey up to Jerusalem, whether that was, you know, an unclean animal or if you'd been around a dead body, whatever it may have been, you've got new garments there, you've been clean. So you enter in to the first kind of level there. And in this first kind of courtyard area of the temple, which is about six football fields large there, uh, you could have, you could enter there if you're a pagan, but a God-fearer. You could enter there if you're a, a Jewish person or a woman. You could go there. And then there was another gate you got to as you entered the courtyard where you could only enter there if you were Jewish. So women and men that were Jewish could enter in the next realm, and so you could go in there. So there's another level of exclusion. Past the women's court, right? This is the women's courts where Jesus taught and when he was a child and all these different things. Past the women's court, only Jewish men could go to the next court, okay? And then past the Jewish men's court was the holy area that only the priests could go into, preferably priests, who were in good shape, right? You need to have no boils, ceremonially set a cloth as, as clean. Zechariah was in the temple when he saw the angel there in the holy spot doing that. And then just past the holy is the very inner part of the temple, which is the holy of holies. Now, there was only one person from the entire population of the globe that could go in the Holy of Holies, and he could only go in there once a year. And that was the high priest. Now, in this particular Passover season, that high priest was Caiaphas, who, oddly enough, is just clamoring for the death of Jesus and wants it over as soon as possible. Right? But let me tell you about this veil between the Holy and the Holy of Holies. All right? Um, have most of you been in the other sanctuary by chance? Most of you have been in there, I guess. You know about what 10 feet is, right? One, two, three, four. So this veil, and you can read about this in Exodus 26. The original instructions were it was an interlaid tapestry that was meant to be made uh, 45 feet tall and four inches thick. All right? So if you can imagine a, fat, a piece of cloth that big. But when Herod came, remember Herod's the builder, Herod's going to make something grander. So Herod builds one that's going to require a 60-foot tapestry to divide the two. This thing is 60 feet tall, interlaid with like purples and blues, and it's four inches thick. Can you imagine that? 60 feet tall, four inches thick. That's what the veil's like. Now, the Gospel of Mark tells us about how the holy vandalism started. That's basically what this is, God vandalizing the temple. That's what I love, right? Mark tells us that the veil that is 60 feet high and four inches thick, I mean, you can imagine the thinking of the priest. If you saw a tapestry like that dividing the Holy of Holies from the Holy, you know, what's behind that four-inch curtain, right? Now, some of you don't like sunlight. Some of you have to work like night shifts and you block out the sun. I think a four-inch tapestry ought to, ought to do it, don't you think? Like, I don't think much light's going to get past a four-inch tapestry, do you? That place back behind the veil is dark. It is mysterious. It is, we don't know what's really going on back there, right? I mean, there's even legends of priests having a rope tied to them in case something happened and they died and they could pull them out at least into the holy part because they couldn't go into the holy of holies if they hadn't gone through the rituals of cleansing and were not in that one particular position. So this thing stands there and these priests are busy, right? This is the Passover. Can you imagine 
to their horror, whenever the veil ripped what the conversation must have been like, Levite to Levite. I mean, they must have been performing these sacrifices, looked and saw the, 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 the tapestry that they thought would stand for thousands of years. This thing is four inches thick, 60 feet tall. It's ripped in half, starting from the top and going to the bottom. You know, I mean, this is like, you know, phone book thick. And now for the first time ever in human history, the, whole, the, the Holy of Holies is exposed and we can look and see inside the place that has always been covered in darkness. But not only is the Holy of Holies exposed, really it is the revelation of God's heart. For the first time, God's heart is exposed in human history. Think about it. Right? The Holy of Holies had the seven golden lamps, dimly lit, no light penetrating past this massive thick veil keeping it out. And then one day Jesus dies and the darkness is gone. The darkness is gone. What do those priests say to one another? Here's what I would have probably said if I was working that day and I was a priest. Better get word to Caiaphas ASAP. We got to get out of the Holy of Holies because the the holiness of God may come out from behind this curtain and consume us all. (laughs) We have got to clear this room now, right? I would be scared to death not truly understanding what was going on. You know, you can insert that. The Bible doesn't say what it is. That's a little bit of preacher, you know, liberty to say something like that. But I think that would be my thinking and probably what some of those priests were thinking. You know, it's, it's amazing to me to think about that. You know, what's God look like? People always ask these questions. What's God like? What's he look like? What does he really like? And here, you know, all of these rituals, the temple, and all of its barricades to keep people away from God in these pathways, here in this passage, holy vandalism, God tears the, through them all. He voids out the old covenant. He voids out the old law. Remember what I told you? That, you know what this signifies here? This tearing of the veil this tearing of the separation between the holy holies it signifies here as i as if you remember i've said this a lot and you probably just sort of glossed over it like okay whatever he's saying that again he has phrases he says every sunday like the grass withers thing he says that every week right or if you're joining us for the first time or the first time in a long time he says that all the time right i've been saying as we've been working through this book what this is all heading to jerusalem everything in this text is going to jerusalem everything's heading to jerusalem Well, now the veil is torn. The place of worship is different. The old covenant has been fulfilled. And now it's going to be out from Jerusalem. Jesus will give the instruction to the disciples to go, therefore, and make disciples from Jerusalem. It's going to be going out to the nations instead of the nations coming to Jerusalem where God's presence dwells. Because God's presence is not veiled behind some cloth. It's not hidden away with multiple barriers. It is now out as Christ's blood and the atonement has fulfilled the need for God's wrath to be satisfied and that system to be put away. All right. Now here, verse 46. Then Jesus calling out with a loud voice. It is important that you recognize this detail. Remember, what is Luke's occupation? What is he? He is a medical doctor, right? Now, I'm going to tell you this. Listen to me. I've been doing ministry for 20 years. What this means is, I don't know if you call this a, a joy, a burden, if you call it a, um, it's an experience, whatever you want to call it. 
I sit by a lot of beds of dying people. It's just part of my job. I sit by the bed of a lot of dying people. I am yet in 20 years of ministry, and I've been in the room when a lot of people have died. I have walked in and found people dead in hospital rooms. Like, this is just part of my job. Like, you know, I told Becky one week I came home. I said, this week I've seen three dead bodies. Like, it's just a normal week of ministry for me. Like, I just, this is what I do. Uh, It is not normal for a person who is dying to raise up and say anything loudly right before they die. Do you know that? Like, I mean, I'm not saying it does not happen. I'm sure it does happen on occasion. But by and large, most of the time as people are dying, particularly if they're dying from something like crucifixion, where you're having to push up and breathe in and breathe out, and the last thing you're going to do is you're basically going to die from suffocation, people don't have the faculty or the strength to cry out in a loud voice. Think about this. As people are dying, your ability to think and to do dwindles, right? As you are dying and parts of your body is shutting down, you're not going to be able to solve crossword puzzles, right? You're not going to be able to do fine motor skill things. And most of the time, you're not going to be able to cry out in a loud voice. What are we learning from this? Why does Luke put this detail in here, right? You know, these, these Roman soldiers had watched thousands of crucifixions. Like, this was their job, to put people to death and watch people Their light just goes from bright to flickering to dim to out. No loud stances or no loud things made or said. And look what he says here. Pay attention to what he says. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He's quoting here Psalm 31.5. Now, in Psalm 31.5, he is, um, the author of that psalm is asking for God to redeem and deliver Jesus doesn't quote the full psalm. He only quotes a little section of the psalm. But another thing that's interesting to me is what Jesus is doing in saying this. You know, Luke only records Jesus saying three things. The totality of the Gospels tell us that Jesus said seven things on the cross. And you can look and research that later. Some commentaries would argue that there are eight, but everybody's agreed there's at least seven. What are the things that Luke records? Luke records the first thing Jesus says on the cross. We've already looked at that, right? Do you remember what that was? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Second thing Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke is to the, to the thief on the cross, I tell you this day you'll be with me where? In paradise. So we get a little peek behind the veil of death. We learn that there's a paradise that's there for all that will believe and love his appearing. We know that there is a personality that is kept. He said, you will be with me in paradise. And here... In this passage today, Jesus is not saying the whole chapter because he's the one doing the redeeming. He is the redeemer. He's not looking for somebody else. He's doing it. In addition to this, this is what we call in ministry as pastors what you would say at an internment. Internment is when you lay the body to rest, right? You know, we've all heard pastors do internments before at a graveside. And now we're going to say ashes to ashes, dust to dust. That's an internment line, right? Or we return this tabernacle back to the ground from which it was made. Another internment line that pastors say whenever we're interning the body back to the ground where it came from. But here, Jesus is making his own internment address, right? And, And what do we see in that? We see him being the priest, the high priest, the great priest, operating here, going to heaven, spilling the blood on the seat of mercy that was needed to end that sacrificial system once and for all. 
He is the great high priest. He is the prophet. He is the king. He is everything we need in this pronouncement. Now, that's the third witness. So we have the witness of the sun, S-O-N. We have the witness of the veil being torn in the Holy of Holies. We have now the witness of the sun, S-O-N. And now we have, last of all, this soldier. And when this centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, Certainly, this man was innocent. I don't know about you, but I always think about that. I can't remember what movie it was. There's a scene where Charlton Heston plays the soldier. Has anybody seen this before? And he does that line, truly, this man was the son of God. In a very Charlton Heston way. Like that's what I always hear in my head, this Charlton Heston when I read these verses. But, you know, this man had, had never seen, he had never seen, you know, he thought that morning when he went out to do his job, he thought he was just going to do another routine crucifixion. He thought, we're going to get this going. We'll see the light go from up to flickering to dim to out in a really quick time. Did had no idea he was going to see an earthquake, three hours of darkness, and hear rumors of the veil being torn, and then watch this guy rally in a way that he'd never seen it across before for people that are suffocating under their own weight of their body and scream and yell out a scripture. He has just given testimony. Now, I think it is hard to say whether or not this is like a testimony this man was saved or not. I sure hope he was. It's not clear in Scripture. You know, there's, there's times when people prophesy and say true things, but they're not necessarily believers in the Bible. So we don't know for sure. Sort of a moot point to argue that. But he certainly says here that he was innocent and he took on these sins. And it says here, in all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, man alive, this verse here tells us a little bit about how depraved the human heart is. They came down to watch this execution for entertainment. How depraved is the human heart that the, the most fascinating, entertaining thing that they could do is watch another human being expire, being executed by the government. It reminds you of, you know, in the Old West, you know, they would make jokes sometimes. We had a hanging in a while. People come out and watch the hangings. You know, I think they eventually got to where they put bags over the head because, anyhow, you can probably fill in the rest. But um, they wanted to make this a spectacle. But instead, because of all that they've seen, because of the testimony of, of the sun, the testimony of the S-O-N sun, the testimony of the veil, the testimony here of the, of the darkness, and this, and this soldier, what is, what is the reaction it went from spectacle to mourning. They had no way when they were executed, the Romans would just haul these bodies of these thieves and usurpers off, throw them in the dump, Gehenna. There was no proper burial for people like that. And that was a big deal in, in Judaism, to have them buried correctly. You can read all about that in the Old Testament. They wanted a proper burial for people, and that wasn't going to happen. The only way to mourn somebody like this on the cross is going to be to kind of beat their chest. It's a sign of mourning, right? You know, we don't really do this in our culture too much. Uh, the only time you see people kind of beat their chest in our culture is probably more of a sign of pride and how awesome I am, sort of how like gorillas beat their chest, like come on, let's have a fight, that sort of a thing. Not so in this context. In this context, this is more for those that are mourning, been delivered bad news. Alistair Begg is a favorite pastor of mine. He oftentimes talked about 
when he was in school in England, that if there was a, a bit of news that would come into the school and the teacher or the principal had to read the students' bad news that had come in, before they would begin reading, he'd be like, boys, and they'd be struck with emotion, and they would begin beating their chest as they read the terrible news that they were about to deliver to the people. That is a similar thing to what is happening here. Whether they thought, this is sad that this prophet has been, uh, has been executed, what the thinking was. And then notice here, verse 49, all the acquaintances and all the women. Again, Luke highlighting those women who started with him, still following him. Where are the men? I think John was probably there according to one of the Gospels. But the rest of those men scattered out into the darkness, aren't they? <coughs> and it says here, watching it. Grab me here in verse 48 <coughs> down to verse 49. Look what it says here. The spectacle they saw them watching these things. This emphasis on seeing and being a witness to what God has done in the fulfillment of the atonement on the cross. It's central to what we believe. It's central to what we believe. They're to go out here and be witnesses. What are a few implications from this? Well, I invite you to take for just a minute now your Bible and put your thumb there and turn with me to Hebrews for just a moment. Hebrews chapter 11. Or excuse me, chapter 10. I want to start at verse 19 here for some last sort of implications from this. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and the living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for, the, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more of you as you see the day drawing near. Look at that. Verse 19 is beautiful, isn't it? Now we can go in. Think about that. Remember all those reservations, right? All those barricades to get to the dwelling of God. Can't go past here if you're not ritualistically cleaned and had the bath of the garments. Can't go past here if you're not Jewish. Can't go past here if you're a woman. Can't go past here if you're not a Levite. Can't go past here unless you're the high priest. All those are gone because of the atonement and blood of Christ. And the encouragement here is three. One, draw near. Let us draw near now to the heart of God as He has revealed Himself in the tearing of the veil and made it clear what was once hidden is now seen. Second of all, that we would hold fast this confession of our hope. Look at that. Remember what I said? They saw all these. They're witnesses now. Witnesses of the death of Christ and they will be witnesses of His resurrection too. So are you. You will go out to your prospective fields as you leave here this week. Go out and be faithful, faithful witnesses holding fast to this confession that Christ has died for our sins and that we can be saved through His blood. And then finally, stir up one another to love and good works. Uh, Christ here doing the ultimate good work. What did he say? The good shepherd does what? He lays down his life for the sheep. We do good things. We seek good works. Not because it saves us. Not because it earns grace. Not because it does something magical and we should get something back. But because we're emulating the good shepherd out of a heart overfull, overfilled with what he's done for us on the cross. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we 
bow before you here. We thank you for this word today. Lord, uh, help us to hold fast and to draw near and to love one another and to love good works. To not neglect coming together as a body, but to encourage each other all the more as we see the day of your return drawing near. Lord, help us to believe these testimonies and to lean into them. Lord, we know it is through you and you alone that we can have salvation. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today you've heard the Word of God preached. You've heard the Gospel preached. Uh, It doesn't get much clearer than Christ dying on the cross for your sins. What is your response? Will you believe these four witnesses? Remember, as Luke writes this, we are the ones on trial. Will we believe them? Or will we believe those scholarly works like the Da Vinci Code, right? That, that, uh, that's a joke, by the way. Right? Uh, that uh, try to point and pull away who Christ is. But the sun proclaims it. The veil rip proclaims it. He proclaims it. And a pagan proclaims it today. What's your answer and response? Please stand as we sing.